Amen. Good morning. I'd like to uh, recognize Seth's haircut. Did you guys check that out? It was getting really, really close to a mullet, so the staff has been praying, and thank you, Jesus. Um, he, he got a haircut. It looks good, bro. You look, you look really good. What, uh, what comes into your mind when you think about God? You don't have to answer out loud, just kind of what comes in your mind. It could be a word. It could be an image. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer. Years ago, you don't need to know who he is, but he has this famous quote that I've heard repeated a lot, that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When I heard that decades ago, I was like, that's kind of hyperbolic. I'm not sure if I agree with that. But over the years, I think he's right. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Last week, Pastor Mike spoke on Romans 12. The Apostle Paul challenged to renew our minds. And Mike mentioned uh, a, a thinker, a theologian, a philosopher, Dallas Willard, in a book, Renovation of the Heart, which I have been reading over the last couple months and highly recommended. And Dallas makes uh, the claim that thinking is our superpower as humans, that, that our ability to form thoughts and to think about something precisely is our superpower. It can also be our downfall. So how we think about something, how we think about other people, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God is the paradigm that shapes literally how we see the world. And if we do that well, then that's wonderful. We do that poorly and we see things through a deformed way of thinking. It can be absolutely devastating. One of the primary ways and most powerful ways that we think is through images. As the saying goes, uh, a picture is worth how many words? Thousand. And that's true. Uh, movements are started over an image or a picture that's a catalyst. And Jesus, he used tons of images or metaphors. The word metaphor comes from a Greek word, and it means to carry away or transfer. And that's because when we're using a metaphor, we're taking one object or picture and transferring some of the meaning onto another. So when we, when we say someone uh, likes to get up early in the morning, we say they're an early. If they like to stay up late, like this guy, then they're a night. Right. So we're not really birds or owls. We're using metaphors, we're using ideas, and we're transferring some of that on another. So this is a primary way we think. So what, what comes into our mind when we think about God? I think a lot of us, we carry deformed images of God. And maybe that's because we've been wounded uh, by church or by a follower of Jesus, or we've set under teaching that's really bad and distorted. All that grieves me, but I think a lot of us carry distorted images. And so much of becoming an apprentice of Jesus is to begin to think like Jesus and to see ourselves and to see others and to see God in the same way that Jesus sees God. So what comes in our mind when we think about God? I think a lot of deformed images, a couple that popped into my mind. You may have your own, but here's just a couple. A judge, maybe not Judge Judy, but right? a judgmental. He, he's a, or like a, a sheriff. Do you, know, do you know this movie, any of you? Tombstones, great, great movie. I shouldn't recommend movies from the pulpit. Anyway, don't watch it. Um, sheriff, or uh, like a life coach or self-help guru, so you can go with Oprah or Dr. Phil, have your choice. Some of us think of God that way. He's just there to kind of help me on the margins, give me some wise advice and manage my life. Some of us think of God as just really distant. 
You know, that, that's, that's the best picture I can come up with Putin. That guy's definitely got issues. And then uh, we think of God, some of us, is, is Santa. Are you on the naughty or the nice list? You're a cute little kid. Let me give you some gifts. And I mean, do we really? Maybe not to that extent, but I think these images permeate our idea of God. When we study scripture, there's a lot of metaphors Jesus uses. There's a lot of metaphors the writers of the Hebrew scriptures use and the writers of the New Testament use about God. One of the most dominant, if not the most dominant, is that God is our shepherd. And we're going to talk about Psalm 23 today. We, uh, we're in the second week of a series called uh, Greatest Hits the Bible on Repeat. My family and I, we were just out east uh, where I grew up in the Outer Banks, and we were, had a drive from uh, our airport to uh, the house in the Outer Banks where we were staying. So it was a few hours. So my wife and I decided to put on a playlist of the greatest hits from the 80s. Any other 80s music fans in here? I make the contention... And I'm not going to argue in, in God's house today, but I'll, I'll argue out in the lobby later. The, the 80s music is the most iconic of any decade. Now, not the best, calm down, not the best, just the most iconic. So we'll have that argument later during Sunday Extra or whatever. But we love them, and it's, it's how I grew up. My wife loves them. Our girls really love 80s music. So we're just going along, and we're singing it, and I'm trying to hit all the falsetto notes. There's a lot of synth and falsetto in the, in the 80s music. And it was really interesting. As we were driving and we're singing songs, like, they're deep in my bones, Music, that's how music shapes you. I, uh, images, pe- people haven't thought of forever from high school or a memory would pop up that's connected to a song. It's mostly joyous, sometimes sad, right? Music just gets inside of us. And I think scripture's the same way. It's meant to be. Scripture's supposed to get up inside of us. And all scripture's God-breathed. It's all profitable. But there's certain passages through the generations and through the ages that every generation of follower of Jesus has kind of clung onto and said, these are special. These are the kind of the greatest hits. And so this series is devoted to exploring these greatest hits. And one of them, even if you're outside, come from outside of church or you're not a follower of Jesus, and we're so glad you're here if that's you, uh, you may not know this passage, but I think most people are familiar somewhat with Psalm 23. So let me pray for us, and then Emily Greco is going to come read our scripture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here with us. We open up our minds and our hearts to you, Spirit, to to reshape us and reform us. I acknowledge, and I I think this is true for most people in this room, that that all of us uh, have some deformed images uh, of you. We don't see see precisely and clearly who you are, and so much of the journey as a follower of Jesus is seeing better. And we pray today that we would just let this metaphor have its way with us, just help us to enter into it and We pray that you would shape and reform how we see you, how we see ourselves, and how we see others for your glory and for the sake of the world. All God's people said? Our passage this morning is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Emily. Um, so just uh, on genre, remember this is, this is poetry, and so we can't come to it the same way we come to like one of Paul's letters or something like that. We begin to pick it apart and try to diagram or something like that. Just, so I think for metaphors and for the Psalms, I like to just enter into it fully. Just let it, let it have its way with me. And so that's my encouragement today. We'll, we'll walk through each section. And I think to, to understand the metaphor better will be important. I think it will expand it in our own hearts and our minds. We're familiar with shepherd and sheep. I doubt there's any vocational shepherds in the room. I could be wrong. Come find me later if that's true. But, but we know it. We understand it. It's not an alien metaphor. I think it can still work for us. When uh, uh, my wife and I were in Israel recently, there's sheep and shepherds everywhere still. But obviously for David, this was a really important metaphor. So as he's writing a psalm, as he's writing poetry, as he's writing a prayer or song, he, and he's thinking about who is God, he goes immediately to the Lord is my shepherd. David, as a young man, was a shepherd. So the things that, that he talks about, uh, he lived. Also, in the ancient Near East, kings were called shepherds. They were referred to as shepherds. They were seen as being shepherds of the sheep, the people that they led. So in David's two main vocational endeavors, shepherd and king, uh, this metaphor was present. The first line, I think, is, is the main idea. And if you have your Bibles, open them up, look at it. We'll be kind of walking through a little bit uh, this psalm. And I want you to own it. I want this to enter into your life as an apprentice of Jesus. So he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I think that's what the NIV says. The Lord, that should be all caps. And again, that just denotes that in the Hebrew, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. And that's uh, observant Jews won't write it or speak it to this day. It's God's personal name. As best we can tell, it means something like I am. That God is the self-sufficient one. So David, who is not self-sufficient, is looking to the self-sufficient one, to provide everything he needs. So it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And I think that it's okay if we read that line and we say, really? Is that, is that true? <laughs> really? Uh, sometimes we can get a little churchy with our language and a little spiritual with our language. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing? Really? So what, what, what is David saying? I think for one, for, for modern folks like myself and like you, it's really difficult for us to receive that because we live in a world that's driven by marketers and social media that is designed through algorithms and through constant advertisements, thousands of them that bombard us every day, to create wants that are then transformed into needs. That's what's happening to us. We just need to be aware of it. So that we're all, we're all prey to it. And so we're told all the time, well, you should want this, and then quickly it becomes you need this. So when we see a simple statement like this, it's, it's almost staggering to us in its simplicity. Here's what David's not saying. He's not saying the Lord is my shepherd, uh, you, you, that he'll provide for all your wants. 
That's not what he's saying. That's what I would refer to as like a, a, a prosperity gospel. And that's just rubbish. It's just not true at all. This idea that if we look to God, he'll just give me whatever I want. That's a gross misinterpretation of Psalm 21.3. Uh, if you ever need to have evidence for why that's a gross representation of the gospel, just see at the heart of the gospel is God hanging on a cross. doesn't mean that things always go well for us. David, if we uh, canvas his life, uh, he had grievous sin in his life. Some of the ramifications were, were losing a son. He had multiple failed marriages. His other son grew up and made a play for the throne and then lost his own life. David was told that he was going to be anointed king of Israel. And then as best we can track the years, he was on the run for his life in the desert for 15 years before he became king. <laughs> he wrote some of his most lamenty psalms during that time, and I don't blame him. Life did not go well for David uh, for long stretches. So he's not saying the Lord is, if the Lord is our shepherd, we, we, he'll provide for all of our wants. I think essentially David's saying, in the core of our Imago day, where God deeply forms us in our most primal, subterranean human aches and groans and needs, if we look to the all-sufficient one to be our shepherd, God will provide for that. And out of that center of wholeness, it will echo out into our relationships, how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see others. That's how I read the verse. And that says, lays the foundation. And then David's going to He's going to walk out this metaphor a little bit, and let's do that with him. Let's enter into it. And what does that look like? He says in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Our daughter Eden, who's 14, uh, she's an extrovert, and she loves people, and she loves activity. She just goes, goes, goes like her dad. She stays up late. Uh, and that manifested itself when she was young in the fact that she, we could just not get her to sleep. It was horrible. I don't know if any of you had children that were like that. And as a young parent, you just need rest, right? You just need to get that kid to bed. That's like Eureka. And so we would do everything. We would read the books, and we'd put her in her favorite pajamas, and we got the little, you know, the little lights and the music, and we'd read her a book, and then another book, and then sing her a song, and then another song, and then more hot milk. And I mean, it was just this, like, anything. Zip up her crib tent, and then finally that moment would come where the eyes would get heavy, and, she, and you'd be like, Yes. But here's the deal. We lived in an old house, and there was creaks in the floor. And, dude, I memorized this. I was like a ninja. I was like, oh, you know, diving and jumping. And every once in a while, I'd misstep, and she would be like, boom, like after a power nap. She'd be like, da-da. And I'd be like, oh, no. And you got to do it all over again. That's what sheep are like. That's what sheep are like. Any shepherd will tell you that. You can tell a dog to sit or lie down. You don't tell sheep to lie down. It's not like, sit, sheep, and like they do it. For a sheep to lie down and rest, and they would have known this. David certainly would have known this. Every single thing has to be taken care of. There are needy creatures like we are. So sheep are, are really easily scared. So shepherds tell stories of a rabbit and brush bringing an entire stampede. Or a cougar uh, showed up one night, and one shepherd said that the sheep were so alarmed, nine of them gave premature birth. So the smallest little thing can cause sheep to just be like, all night. Or sheep will not lie down if they're hungry or they're thirsty. So that's the, that's the verbiage, the poetic imagery that David, the one-time shepherd, is using. That the shepherd, to take care of those deepest primal needs, 
are leading the sheep to green pastures. Uh, this is an arid climate. Today it's arid, and so uh, there's only a couple months of the rainy season. So shepherds would have this circular route. They'd have to take the sheep during the dry seasons to find green pastures, and they'd have to go away from home for many days sometimes. Uh, shepherds to this day have to go up to 8,000 feet sometimes in the driest months to find green pastures. Shepherds uh, would normally t- get up at 3 a.m. and graze with the sheep till 10 a.m. So if you're, if you're not a morning person, don't become a shepherd. I guess that's the deal. My point being, they work really, really hard to take care of the hunger. And they work really, really hard to make sure the sheep are not thirsty because, again, they won't lie down if they're thirsty. It's a desert. It's an arid climate. So the shepherds would set up a system of wells or cisterns, but sometimes they just come to a place where there was nothing. And they'd have to search out the spring. I think that's what David's referencing here. We also know that sheep will not drink or get close to moving water. These are skittish animals. So the shepherds would actually have to carve out a channel out the spring to create a pool to lead the sheep to. And lead is a key word. We know that shepherds, even to this day, have little pipes and they have a specific tune for their sheep. And Jesus references this idea in John 10, the sheep know my name. So the shepherd will play the, the pipe tune or it'll be a certain whistle and that, that, that the sheep will follow. So the shepherd's leading them to green pastures, leading them to quiet waters, providing a safe context so they can finally lay down and rest. That's what we need. That's what the sheep need. So David's playing out this metaphor. He, uh, he continues on and uh, he says that... Uh, in, verse, uh, in, in the next verse, in verse 3, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the paths for his namesake. Uh, he refreshes my soul. In the Hebrew, uh, I think literally, and when I recite this, I say he brings me back to life. That word refresh in the Hebrew has that connotation of bringing something back to life. I think Jesus is referencing this in Luke uh, 15, where he says that the, the shepherd, good shepherd will leave the 99 to find the one or to save the one. So he brings the sheep back to life for the shepherd's namesake. So sheep uh, wander. That's just what they do. They just naturally wander. And so at night, there's no electricity, obviously. So when it gets dark, it gets really dark. So the shepherd's up. He's watching. If they don't have a, a pen that the sheep are in, he is walking around the perimeters all the time. But it's dark, and there's lots of sheep. So when, when dawn breaks, the first thing a good shepherd will do is count the sheep. 97, 98, oh, where's Harry? Harry wandered off again. And so sheep will wander off. And when the shepherd sees that one is missing, a good shepherd will go find the sheep. Now, when sheep wander off, eventually they realize they're alone and they get scared. So they just get in brush and they begin to bleat loudly until something comes, which is really good for the shepherd, but not good, but, but terrible for predators that are looking for the sheep. So that's what sheep do. It's a bleeding sheep. So this is the image that shepherds will search out the lost sheep. And they, and they were, to this day, in the ancient years, they take the, the sheep and they put it over their neck and they carry it back to the flock, to safety. Sheep are also prone to what's uh, being uh, called cast down. So this is when sheep, I guess, are out of shape and fat or get too much wool. Sometimes, it's kind of a hilarious thought, sometimes sheep just fall over, just fall right over. And sheep are like really vulnerable standing on their legs. Imagine them all four legs up in the air. 
So sometimes, sometimes the shepherd will wake up in the morning and he's counting. He's like, oh, no, Ginger's down again, you know, and got to go flip Ginger over so she's not vulnerable and doesn't die. There was a, I came across this, this hilarious story of a sheep called Shrek in New Zealand. And somehow this sheep, this sheep evaded getting shored for six years. And somebody found this sheep, they, th- they think in a cave. And, uh, and this is, uh, this is uh, Shrek after getting shorn. Let's, a little trim down, yeah. Looking lean, uh, 60 pounds of wool <laughs> they got off of Shrek. So uh, imagine the vulnerability. That's what David wants us to understand, the vulnerability of the sheep. And a good shepherd always has the watch for a while, always watching. The good shepherd brings the sheep back to life, saves them for his namesake. I was a youth pastor for, for many years, and uh, we would always take kids on all kinds of trips and uh, I would come back and you'd get from parents and staff like, hey, how was the trip? And I would like snarkily respond, oh, we brought back most of the kids. And I learned, I learned now that I'm a parent, that's not funny. That's not a... <laughs> and so if you're a youth pastor that brings back most of the kids, you won't be a youth pastor for very long. Yeah, that's part of being a youth pastor is protecting the kids, right? This is the idea of sheep and shepherd. The reputation of the shepherd was directly correlated to how the sheep were doing. If you were a shepherd that continually lost sheep and didn't save them, and the flock was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you wouldn't be a shepherd for long. So this is a beautiful thought as we think, go back to God as our shepherd, that God's direct reputation is built on caring for us, watching over our past. There's a direct correlation. His namesake is at stake. That's what David wants us to understand. And then he goes on, and, and we're in, uh, in verse four now. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, that word darkest in the Hebrew is two other Hebrew words, the word for shadow and the word for death, the valley of shadow death. Even though we walk through the valley of shadow death, we, we do not fear because he's with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. So this is the image. There's these, uh, these valleys called wadis in, in, in the ancient Near East and in Israel. Corey and I walked through a few of them when we were there. They're really beautiful. And in the, in the non-rainy seasons, they're dry. They're like dry riverbeds at the bottom. They're, they're very sharp precipice. You can take trails and people have to. The nomads and the shepherds have to take the flock through these to get to green pastures. But it's, it's scary. There's, they could just drop off and sheep are known to just walk right off cliffs and then other sheep will follow them right off. So shepherds are always watching. And then in rainy season, there's flash floods. And so when you get into the wadi and you get in there, you got to get through that thing. There's bandits that will wait out at night. They're just dangerous inherently. And this is what David is referencing. So when you get the flock in, it's not, it's not a thing to get the flock in on these narrow trails and be like, we're turning around, everybody back. You know, it's just not a deal. Once you're in, you've got to go through, through. And David's like, in the midst of the valley of shadow death, and maybe some of you are in that this morning, the valley of shadow death, that God will walk with us through. I always try to encourage people when I'm sitting in a bedside at a hospital or at a funeral, through. And then David says, we will not fear. We're so prone to fear right now. The church, Christians, we're so prone to fear. 365 times the scriptures say, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because we're strong and we're self-sufficient. No, we're sheep. We do not fear because he is what? With us. It's one of the most dominant promises in scripture from beginning to end. God is with us. Emmanuel, that's Jesus, God 
with us. Because he is with us, we will not fear, and we will make it through the valleys of shadowed death. And David said, he references these, this, the, the equipment, the instruments the shepherd uses to protect the sheep, and their rod and a staff, and there's some disagreement on what these, these were, and this little picture kind of gives us a, an idea. Perhaps this, the staff was to hook sheep that were falling off or had fallen down. The rod, I've read some stuff, are like really good shepherds, even to this day, are trained to take the rod, and they fling it, and they can fling it like a long way and nail an animal right on the head or a predator. These are instruments the good shepherd uses to protect the sheep. So we move into verse 5, and there's a shift, if you notice. If you're looking at the psalm, you can see the shift. David gives us this profoundly beautiful metaphor as God is our shepherd, but then he shifts and he gives us a, a supplemental metaphor, a new metaphor that also fits with him, and it's the metaphor of a, a gracious host. And David would have known this well, part of being a king, and a wealthy king was that you threw feast all the time. And so David is, is opening our minds and our hearts to God as this host, that, that the gracious host prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. A lot of times when an enemy was conquered, they had to come sit uh, as captives on display or reluctant guests at a victory celebration speech. So the enemies are vanquished. There's no more evil. There's no more enemies. Woohoo! We'll celebrate with a mighty feast. That's the idea. There's no, we don't need to be fearful that the enemies are defeated. They're, they're right there in front of us, and we're going to feast. And then this anointing the head with oil. There's a lot of head anointing in the ancient Near East. But one of the ways this was used was when you came to a meal, if you were the guest of honor your head was anointed with oil. So we're not just guests, we're the guests of honor. And then this idea of like cups overflowing. I love dinner parties where cups are overflowing. That's awesome, vivid image. I gathered uh, recently, there was a scholar in town, uh, Dr. Lucy Pepiot and her uh, husband, Nick, were in town to do some pastor things. And then I gathered uh, some other pastors to have dinner one night. I think there's a picture. I think this is at Renata. I think that's how you pronounce the name. Great little restaurant in Portland. And we had a really generous benefactor that heard about it and said, hey, I want to cover everything. I'm like, this is my idea of a good dinner party. I like it. So we entered it, and we had a private room, and these great folks that I do gospel work with in the city, and then Lucy and her husband, she's this incredible scholar, and it was, it was the best night. And along the edges, there was like five or six servers, and all night, you couldn't move without somebody filling your cup. I mean, just what do you need, sir? What do you need? What do you need? And then they kept on bringing food, and I kept thinking it was the main course, and it was another appetizer. I mean, this is my kind of feast. Just food coming out, good conversation, kingdom work. And I sat back at one point, point, I just looked around the table, and I'm like, oh, this is a small taste of kingdom come. This is a small taste of what one day we'll be entering into uh, through the benevolent work of King Jesus. That's the image David wants us to step into. Cups overflowing, people always filling them. And then in verse 6, he kind of brings it to this crescendo. What a beautiful verse to dwell on. And I think that he brings the two metaphors together. And what links them together is this idea is God is life-giving host. It's another dominant image we see in Scripture. Uh, the word hospitality, the root of it in Latin, is host. God's this life-giving host, and as a shepherd, that's what the, the shepherd, a good shepherd does, is hosts the sheep and cares for them and provides green pastures and still waters and safe transport through valleys of shadow death. And then we see in this image that, that the, the gracious host at the feast, inviting us in to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's what holds it together. The shepherd thing comes back in where, where he says that, 
surely your goodness and mercy will follow me. We've already looked at leading, but this word following would evoke the work of a shepherd yet again. At night, when, when it was, the sun was going down, uh, the sheep were, were most vulnerable. The shepherd would be at the front scanning and leading and trying to get, but in the back, that's where predators would come to pick off the ones that you know, got distracted or the ones that were limping or the ones that were young or the ones that were vulnerable. And a good shepherd knows that and would usually have an apprentice shepherd, like a shepherd junior, bringing up the rear or, or sheepdog. And this idea, I love this idea that, that Jesus leads us, that God leads us, but I love the fact that God's also our rear guard. He's coming up from behind. And as I, David says, surely your, your goodness, your tov is the Hebrew word, and, and your mercy or your love, your hesed. These are two words we've talked about a lot around here. They're two of the dominant words used to talk about God. Your, your, your goodness and your faithful love that will never, ever quit. Dallas Willard talks about these two things. He, he, he thinks about them as little puppies trailing along. You look over your shoulder, there's, there's, there's Tove and, and Hesse. There's goodness and love following me. They just won't let us go. They're just coming. They're bounding after us. That's the idea. And then we will dwell in the house of the Lord uh, forever. I, I got to think, Paul was thinking about this when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians, and he says, we're no longer strangers and aliens. That word alien means to be outside of a house, but now we're members of God's household. What a beautiful idea that God's literally saying in the psalm that my house is your house forever. When, uh, if you could be any animal, uh, what would you be? Little crabber, you don't, you don't have to shout out, and just kind of think, you know, in your mind, what? What would you be? My first answer is usually a golden retriever because I just think they're the best. We have what we've always had of. They're just incredible dogs. And then I was thinking we were at the coast or the beach recently and I saw a lot of dolphins. They're pretty cool, right? They always have that, that grin on their face and they're in pods. You know a dolphin can kill a shark with its nose. It's incredible. So a dolphin would be pretty cool. But then I heard about this creature called a liger. Have you heard of ligers? Oh, dude, these, this is Hercules. He's the largest liger in the world, 11 feet, 922 pounds. I mean, that's pretty awesome. So I might have to go with liger. I'm not sure. What none of us would answer, I don't think, is sheep. <laughs> I mean, just have you been listening to the sermon? <laughs> They're prone to mob instincts. They're timid. They're insecure. They get easily distracted. They're known of really all the animals in the animal kingdom of just being stupid. So I don't think any of us would be like, sheep. And yet, and yet, when the writers of Scripture think of an animal to describe us, they don't choose liger. <laughs> they choose sheep. And I, and I realized this as I was, as I was walking through this, this, this psalm this time. And, uh, and it's the Lord cannot be my shepherd. The Lord cannot be your shepherd unless we acknowledge we're sheep. I know that's really simple. This is why you pay me the big bucks, right? <laughs> These really profound you know, observations. But it's true. We can't enter into that life of God being our shepherd if we think we're all sufficient, if we think we're ligers. Part of entering in, part of unlocking the benevolence and the sufficiency of God Almighty is acknowledging who we are. Yep, we're timid. We're prone to mob instincts and anxiety. We need a lot taken care of before we can rest we're stubborn, and yeah, many of us are stupid. I would put myself in that category. We're foolish people. 
Once we enter into that, it kind of unlocks in humility this idea. My, uh, my, my mentor for 17 years, I was at a church in Madison, Wisconsin, and my lead pastor there, his name's Chris. He was a wonderful leader. I was just chatting with him the other day. Um, and he, he would, uh, he'd watch us as young pastors. We had a pretty big staff. And, and I promise you, New Hope staff does not do this at all. But at that church, occasionally, we would get a little disgruntled at some of the parishioners for their behaviors, you know, and be like, we'd talk about it a little bit. And, oh, this person's doing this, and they're complaining about this, and this and that. And he'd listen to us. He'd been in ministry for a long time. And I don't know how many times he said this to us. He'd kick back, and he'd let us talk for a while. And then he'd shrug, and he's like, well, sheep, S-H-I-T. So he would say, don't say that word, kids. It's a bad word. <laughs> and we were, he wasn't, he was like a really clean cut dude. He wasn't like a, a cursor at all. That's why it always caught us. Like, whoa, whoa. We kind of giggle, you know, that when he'd say it. But it stuck with me. And what he was saying, like, what do you expect? Like, right? We're all broken. We're all in need of grace. We're all sheep. And I think there's a liberation in that as we do life with one another, and certainly as we enter into this metaphor, that as we recognize that we're sheep and we're really vulnerable and we need a lot of provision, that God is offering to be our good shepherd. Uh, this idea of, of God being our shepherd is throughout the scriptures and not just in Psalm 23. Micah mentions it in Isaiah. A number of the other psalmists mention it. Micah in particular talks about prophetically about this great shepherd that would come and rule with the strength of Yahweh and bring the kingdom of Yahweh to bear. And then we open up our Gospels and we see throughout, but particularly in John 10, check that out, Jesus stepping into that metaphor and saying, yeah, that's me. That's me. Imagine this, now that you understand a little bit, Psalm 23, especially verse 1, what it's claiming. Jesus of Nazareth says that to me. And they understood what he was saying. Keep reading in John 10. They called him demon-possessed. They said he was crazy in the head. They tried to throw him off a cliff, and they crucified him. They understood what he was claiming, that Jesus is claiming to be the great shepherd of the sheep, the long-promised good shepherd. He wasn't what they expected, but I think he certainly was. The early Christians understood this. They used lots of imagery. They understood the power of image. So if you go to the catacombs where a lot of them hid out or they were buried, we see all kind of graffiti, Christian graffiti. You see the, the fish and you see a vine, you see a wheel. There's all kind of things they would use to evoke gospel images. One of the ones we see more than any other is the good shepherd. Often, and there's going to be some pictures here of a catacombs. Uh, above a baptismal in, in modern-day Syria, an old church was found. We found that image there. It's everywhere because it evoked the heart of the gospel. Jesus says that he had compassion on them because he, was, he knew that they were sheep without a shepherd, that he, he left the 99 to find the one, that, that a good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. They understood this. They understood the power of this image. They understood they had to Im- enter into the reality of being sheep. I could, I could uh, give you article after article. You, you go home and just Google it. You could find this. It's, it's readily available, this idea that we are the most anxious group of people that have ever lived. It's everywhere, all across the globe, not just Americans, everywhere. Just anxiety is the common emotion. It just stalks our path. I, I know that's true for me. That's true for my family, the other people I see, all that. It's just, and there's no shame here. It's just it's, it's the reality that that's the case. In comes Psalm 23 that directly confronts the reality of our anxiety. Not in a shamed way, not in a judgy way, but in an invitational way. 
You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. There's another way to live. You don't have to allow anxiety to run your life. I want to leave you with this question to kind of ponder as we worship and come to the table. Uh, is Jesus your shepherd? Is he your, and, and if you read the, the Hebrew and you, you factor in the, the verb and the tenses and all that, essentially how it's to be translated is uh, so long as the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So long as the Lord is my shepherd. Is, is he your shepherd? Isaiah tells us all we like sheep, all of us have gone astray, each going our own way. Jesus as the good shepherd comes into the midst of our anxiety-riddled lives and hearts and offers the hope through these two profound metaphors of, of a life of restful joy. Right after John 10, he, he says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the abundance. How about that offer? It's a pretty cool offer. I'm interested. Over vacation, I, uh, one of the books I was reading, I'm almost done with it, is called, uh, by Steve Cuss, called Managing Leadership Anxiety. I mean, who reads a book on leadership anxiety on vacation? This guy. This guy does. And it's a really great book, and it's talking about not only you know, my own anxiety that I carry and, and deal with, but also anxiety that's in our staff, perhaps, or in our broader church, or just being aware of that and tools for how to, how to bring health and formation. And I, I highly recommend it. One of the things that I wrote down in my journal and I took home is just this little exercise. And Steve's a pastor, and he says he does this regularly. And it's been really profound for me, so I want to introduce it to you as we, as we go to the communion table. And, and, and I want you to think about what word you would put in this. And Steve says he regularly, when he's feeling anxiety, answers this question or fills in this blank, Jesus died to free me from needing blank anymore. Jesus died to free me from needing blank anymore. Approval, success, health. Maybe there's a person's name there. How would you fill in that blank? And then we take that thing, whatever that is, maybe for me it's a list of things, and we hold it up to the good shepherd. And what I do as a practice is I pray my way through Psalm 23 with it, with that front and center, just being vulnerable from the Lord. I just pray my way. And this is the way Psalm 23 has entered into my prayer life and really shaped my prayer life in profound ways. So I want to invite you to memorize it. We're doing that throughout the series. If you haven't memorized Psalm 23, it's such a profound prayer that can liberate and bring freedom and bring hope in our darkest moments. And so uh, if you're willing, you're able, I'm just going to ask you to, to close your eyes. And, and I think some of the power of metaphor and scripture uh, this is a way uh, St. Ignatius would teach his, his folks to, to read scripture, especially the gospels, is to envision it and to see it. And I want you to enter into this metaphor, if you're willing with me. It's such powerful imagery here. As you're holding up that thing or list of things, what is that? Jesus died to free you from needing what anymore? The thing that's driving your anxiety and keeps you up at night. What is that thing? Let's, let's in humility as sheep lift that thing up to the good shepherd and let's pray our way through Psalm 23. The Lord is, is our shepherd. We lack nothing. Is that true? Is, is the Lord your shepherd? He makes us lie down in green pastures. Picture incredible pasture, like you're the mountain setting and it's just a perfect day. There's no humidity. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. Blue skies, slight breeze. You got nowhere to go. No one to impress, nothing to do. 
He leads us beside quiet waters. Picture that, that bubbling brook, that incredibly intoxicating sound as you're lying in those green pastures and you're fully satisfied. You're not hungry. You're not thirsty. No one's waiting to hear from you. There's nothing you need to do. And you lie under the watchful eye of your good shepherd that not only goes ahead of you, but he's got your back. He brings me back to life. Are you feeling dead and lifeless today? I got some of that going on in me. Jesus can bring us back to life. He is the resurrected one. He leads us along the right paths, not for your namesake, not for my namesake, for his namesake. His reputation is built on how he cares for us. Even though we walk through the, the valleys of shadow death, we will fear no evil. The church breaks my heart. The church is so riddled with fear. So many fear-monging pastors and followers of Jesus just entering into that fear economy, stoking fears. It's the antithesis of the gospel. We walk through valleys of shadow death and we will fear no evil. Why? Because we're almighty and awesome. Nope, we're sheep. He's with us. He's with us. Are you in a dark valley today? Jesus is with you. You're not alone. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And then picture this scene. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. There's no more enemies. There's no more evil. They're vanquished. We're sitting down at a joyous feast with Jesus at the head of the table. We'll be there one day soon. He anoints our head with oil. We're not just guests. We're favored guests. We're sitting at the head of the table. And our cups overflow with Jesus. There are no empty cups. There's no scarcity mindset. There is more than enough. And then surely, not maybe, not possibly, but surely his goodness and his love, they follow us. They're coming for you. Jesus goes ahead of us. He goes behind us. His goodness and his love, he chases us wherever we go. Even if we're the only one who's lost, Jesus will keep looking. He'll keep coming. His goodness and his love will chase us all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the safety and the protection and the abundant provision of the house of the Lord forever. God's house is now our house. And all God's people said, Go ahead and grab your cups. And when the early church came to, to communion, it was almost always part of a feast, which is really cool to think about. Uh, we couldn't do that this morning. It's a, it'd be a lot of tables, a lot of feasts. Maybe one day, I would love to do that. But it was woven in. We don't know exactly where it came and when they did it, but it was always connected with a the feast. They were always living into, as they remembered, the image of this great feast that would one day come with Jesus sitting at the head of the table. And we've uh, we found some cups from those early centuries that we assume that were used for communion. And the image we found on some of the cups is the image of Jesus, the good shepherd. Isn't that interesting? As they're coming to remember Jesus' broken body and spilled blood, they remember this profoundly beautiful image and metaphor that should usurp all other images and metaphors, especially the deformed ones, when we think about God. That Jesus is our good shepherd. He's willing to lay down his life the sheep, and he's willing to bring us back to life.
praise be his name. The scriptures tell us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may go ahead and take the elements. And if you're willing and able, stand with me and let's worship.